A Polar Voices Perspective with Heidi Swanson. So I'm Heidi Swanson, and I am an assistant professor at University of Waterloo um, in Waterloo, Ontario. I'm interested in how climate change is affecting lake processes and how those lake processes and ecology go on to affect fish mercury concentrations. And the reason that I'm interested in fish mercury levels is that fish are a huge subsistence food source in the north. Um, They often, it's not uncommon for them to have quite high mercury levels and people are concerned about those mercury levels. And there's been this huge historical context of people kind of getting scared off their traditional foods because of contaminants. And so I think it's really important to get a handle on what the risks and benefits of eating country foods are, which isn't my area, that's one step beyond what I look at, but also why mercury levels are high in some lakes, low in other lakes, and what's going to happen with climate change. Mm. Yeah, well, there's all kinds of things that can happen. So, like, fish mercury levels in a lake... What determines how much mercury is in a fish is this whole, like, myriad of factors. So it's lake temperature, it's amount of oxygen in the lake, amount of sulfate in the lake, amount of mercury that's falling on the lake, how fast the fish are growing, um, how much algae is in the lake, what the pH is, the color. So you know how some lakes have that kind of tea reddish color, especially in a thawing permafrost area versus a glacial lake. Those have very different mercury levels. And so putting the picture together for how climate change affects mercury, you have to look at how climate change is going to affect each one of those factors. And then which factor is the most important for explaining mercury in that lake. So it's a really complicated story. Um, and it requires like a big team of people with different expertise. And I, I just find it fascinating. Like there's no end of questions to, to try to address. I'm interested right now in the North American Arctic and subarctic. So I have sites in Northern Alaska that range from Atkisik area up to Barrow. And that actually experiment is super cool. And so we have nine lakes in Northern Alaska that are on a climate gradient of 10 degrees celsius at the beginning of the ice-free season and two ice-free weeks so basically it's a space for time experiment we're substituting you know time as in climate change for space right now and so we're looking at how the food webs in the lake the mercury levels and the hydrology differs among lakes along this climate gradient which is pretty cool so that's northern Alaska and then here in the Yukon where we are now we're looking at Kluani Lake for the most part but also trying to figure out how increasing inputs from glaciers as the glacier melt accelerates is going to affect fish mercury levels in the Daytro region of the Northwest Territories I work really closely with communities that's been a super fun project it's community-based questions so the community contacted me and asked why some lakes have high mercury and some lakes have low mercury and why mercury is increasing in some lakes but stable in others and so we're working on that question there and there's permafrost researchers working there as well in Nunavut I'm working on more basic data questions because Nunavut there's barely any data for anything it's just so remote and then in northern Ontario we're working on whether sea run fishes like um, sea run ciscos and sea run whitefish have hot higher or lower mercury levels than the ones that stay in the rivers. So there's kind of a big gradient. Uh, Right now I'm still missing northern Quebec. I'll have to get some more sites there. I work with a lot of different researchers. Right now I also have a lot of graduate students actually, but in Alaska I work with the USGS Alaska Science Center. 
So there's a whole team there, biogeochemists, hydrologists, fish biologists. In the Daycho, actually, that's more of a, it's me and then a human health researcher. And so I take my results um, and we generate data on mercury levels in fish. And he figures out how many healthy fatty acids and nutrients are in the fish. And then we make a risk model. So that's kind of a, a duo there. Here in the Yukon, um, it's me and a hydrologist and a biogeochemist as well as a paleolimnologist. And so part of our study of the lake here is reconstructing mercury levels over time by sediment cores. And that's with a colleague at Waterloo. And then Northern Ontario, that's a huge project with about 20 to 25 different researchers um, from all across Canada, putting together the landscape factors and hydrology and plant cover and permafrost and river flows and everything with mercury. Each project has a different funder and a different team, and I have one grad student on, on each project right now. The common question among all those different projects is, of all these things that can affect mercury levels in fish, which one seems to be the most important? And how is that going to be affected by climate change? That's kind of the overarching question that links everything together. What seems to be happening, so in more southerly systems, mercury biomagnifies. So it's like DDT or PCBs, it builds up with every level in the food chain. So a fish has a higher level of mercury than the bugs or the fish that it ate. And like an osprey or something that ate a fish would have a higher level of mercury than the fish. It builds up every time something eats something else. So in the south, that biomagnification effect seems to really explain most of the trends that we see. That's not true in the north. What we're finding in the north is growth rates are really driving mercury levels in a lot of the lakes and growth rates are really sensitive to changes in climate because fish growth can either increase or decrease with water temperature and will often increase as the lakes become more productive and that's what we're kind of expecting to occur because not in all lakes but in some lakes the permafrost is going to melt or thaw sorry the permafrost is going to thaw and you're going to have more nutrients going into the lakes so fish growth could increase and so that's one of the questions that's really kind of one of the roads we're, we're going down right now from the preliminary findings. When we're talking about mercury levels, we're talking about concentrations. So we're talking, you know, parts per million, let's say 0.5 parts per million. What happens when fish grow efficiently and quickly is that they produce more flesh for the amount of food that they eat. That means that the amount of contaminants that they've taken is, is being diluted. So think about like an old even an, like an older person or an older fish, you know, as you get older, you don't tend to be able to build muscle, right? Um, you might eat the same amount of food, but you're kind of burning it off in basal metabolism. You're not building muscle. So what's happening is you're, the contaminants that you're taking in are being concentrated in what little tissue you have left. Whereas if you're able, if you're growing really efficiently, you're going to put on this muscle mass and you're going to take in the same amount of contaminants perhaps, but it's going to be diluted over a larger mass. And so fish in the north tend to grow very slowly because it's cold and because it's unproductive. So when we speed up the growth rates, we tend to see decreases in mercury levels. So where I did my PhD and postdoc in Nunavut, that's kind of my research home. I love the barren lands and the tundra. Those camps were either, were often an exploration camp for mining, if that makes logistical sense, or sometimes we are just on our own. So we'll get dropped by a float plane or a helicopter and put up a camp and stay there for a few weeks. In Northern Alaska, we work out of helicopter and float plane out of Barrow. This at Kalani Lake, I call Club Med. 
because we're at research station on a road, which is really, really easy. Um, and then in Nunavut, both Nunavut, my current research and Northern Ontario, it's fly-in. So we're usually float planes or helicopters. Until recently, I didn't work directly with communities. I was um, mo mostly on the land on my own. But uh, one of my favorite stories was I was working with, <laughs> I was working with an um, Inuk from Joe Haven. And so we were at a satellite camp in Nunavut. This was like 2007. Satellite camp in Nunavut, just three of us, me and my field assistant and Mark Lulikatuk from Joe Haven. He was our bear monitor. And we had phoned Mark. We had satellite phoned over to a camp because there was a bear that kept hanging around our cabin. And so we needed a bear guide. So Mark flew over and uh, showed up in a float plane and the next morning wake up and he didn't believe us he didn't believe that there were a bunch of bears around he's like oh there's no bears on on this peninsula so we go to bed that night and a bear ripped the door off the cabin by the frame in the middle of the night and mark's quite deaf so i was like throwing socks at him and yelling at him to wake up because there was a bear in the cabin and i had my gun out and Mark calmly like looks at the door, which was, you know, this cabin's only, you know, 10 by 12 feet kind of thing. Calmly gets his gun out, but just like, you know, gets up and the bear startles and leaves outside. And then there's this amazing interaction for 45 minutes where it was just Mark versus the bear staring at each other, neither of them moving. And eventually the bear took off. And so Mark comes back in the cabin. Mark was a guy of very few words. He doesn't say very much, like a lot of Northerners actually. And he gets, he like lays down, gets back in his sleeping bag and looks over at us and says, chill out, small bear. <laughs> and we're like, ah, uh, no, <laughs> we're not getting back to sleep. We've had a lot of bears eat floats, boats, tents, electric fences, generators, coolers, you name it. We've had a lot of, a Nunavut, a lot of bear encounters. Um, having grad students, I feel more comfortable sending them to a place like this because they're safer. <laughs> than when I send them up to Nunavut to camp by themselves on the tundra with a bunch of bears. So it's road accessible, but Kluwani Lake is super interesting because you have glacial inflow. Um, you've got two different mountain ranges draining into it. There's this huge, it's just this big kind of mixing pot for all of these processes that are sensitive to climate. Um, as well, it's a huge lake and it's really understudied. I was actually shocked. I came here for the first time two years ago and it's right on the road. I mean, there's five boat launches about, you know, along the Alaska Highway and there's no data. There are no data on the mercury levels. There's very little data on the fishery. The, there was a survey done two years ago, but basically nothing's really been done on this lake. And I just, I find that fascinating because there's been a research station here for you know, however many years, but everyone's been focused on the glaciers and the terrestrial ecology and no one's really looked at the lake. So I think it's about time. <laughs> Kluwani Lake is really important as a subsistence, um, for subsistence food fishes. And in this lake, you'll find grayling, uh, northern pike, lake trout, whitefish, in canoe. You can find little prey fishes such as sculpin. Uh, so there's actually quite a few species. It's very diverse for a northern lake. This lake is one of the things that I find so fascinating is that the south end is a really kind of chocolate milk color and that's because of the glacial inflow coming in from the slims. And this whole lake actually tilted. It used to drain out the other way. So right now the lake drains to the north, um, but a few hundred years ago it drained out to the south. And what happened was um, that south end got so full of sediment that the whole drainage flopped 
which is really, really interesting. So you see this big gradient in color from this kind of chocolate milk in the south end to kind of emerald green in the middle and then to a little bit mercury again in the north end. And that's one of the things that I find really interesting because nobody's looked at it yet, but I think the productivity of the lake differs in the north to the mid to the south. And I think the that possibly the lake chemistry and mercury in the water is also going to differ between those basins. So right now the water comes from the slims, which is the south end. That's our big inflow of kind of chocolate milk glacier stuff. Then we've got inputs from Christmas Creek, cultists, um, the Gladstone comes in. There's quite a few streams and rivers. If you, you know, if, when you're driving from here to Fairbanks, you'll cross over a number of streams and rivers, and then it flows out um, the north end, the Klonee River, and eventually drains into the Yukon. I think a lot of people are often interested to find out that a lot of people think of the Arctic as a really pristine place. Um, and so people are surprised sometimes to hear that there's a lot of contaminants in certain areas of the north. And I'm often asked, where does the mercury come from? And the mercury comes from the south, for the most part, from burning of fossil fuels. Coal-fired power plants are the largest mercury source. And then there's atmospheric transport. Mercury is the one of the only metals that's really volatile and so that means it goes into the atmosphere really easily and then is transported on air currents really easily. So a lot of the mercury in Alaska for example is from Russia and Asia and then we also get mercury up here from the Ohio Valley, um, other parts of North America and so it's just it's one of those things where you think it's really unfair you know there's people that rely on the land for their food sources and those are being contaminated not like by actions that are not their own and so I think people are often really surprised to hear how how much pollution there is in a place that really doesn't have much industry yet. So basically the largest source of mercury to lakes right now um, well not everywhere as a rule of thumb is the atmosphere but there is mercury stored. There certainly is mercury stored in permafrost. And mercury and carbon have a really interesting and complicated relationship. And of course, there's lots of carbon in permafrost. And so in areas where we have thick active layers, that is, you know, thick kind of peat layers that are thawing quickly and where we're introducing kind of these carbon sources into lakes, we're expecting to find more mercury delivery to lakes as well. What I've learned is it's just so different region to region and I get really attached to the people I work with. Um, I mean, last year I, in September, I was out on the land uh, at a camp in Nunavut, um, out of Kolokhtak, which is a landscape that I'm really attached to. And you just meet the most amazingly resilient people that are really attached to the land and that have amazing perspectives that you never would have known. It's extremely, it's extremely rewarding. It's also extremely challenging to work that kind of interaction into like a more southern fast-paced lifestyle. I mean I work at a university just outside of Toronto which is a completely different world than the north so sometimes it's really difficult because there'll be a community meeting that I absolutely need to be at in the Yukon or Nunavut which is at least a day and a half of travel and I'm teaching 600 students three times a week. So the clash of those two realities can sometimes be very difficult to manage, but those interactions are what make me passionate about working in the North, so, so far, so good. It's, it's different issues in every, in every place and different challenges in every place, but the end is always good. 
This has been a Polar Voices Perspective with Heidi Swanson at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. You can find full episodes of Polar Voices and other featured perspectives at thepolarhub.org. Polar Voices is produced by the UI Museum of the North in collaboration with the Arctic Institute of North America as part of the Polar Learning and Responding Climate Change Education Partnership.